Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. Eric, I believe the congratulations are due, sir. Hmm. Um, yes, Adito. Uh, well, as we talked about briefly last week, you know, there was a time when we were at HBO where I was ringside for pretty much... Every fight, uh, whether it was L.A. or London or Monaco or Macau. Uh, but I, sir, have never covered a fight in the 233rd largest city in the United States, <laughs> which is something that you now have done because you were ringside for Saturday night Showtime Championship boxing card in wonderful Allentown, Pennsylvania. <laughs> as Gary Russell Jr. outpointed Tugstop Nyambayar to retain his featherweight belt and what we hope will not be his only appearance of the year. <laughs> we, we hope so. Uh, and hey, maybe it won't even be his only appearance of the year in Allentown. Ah. Uh, I, I honestly didn't even know Allentown had a downtown area. Uh, I, I guess I'd sort of passed through Allentown at some point in my life, but never uh, really saw the, uh, the bright lights, big city uh, aspect of it or bright lights, 233rd largest city aspect of it uh but yeah it has a downtown area i was there uh people talk about the reputation of the vocal philly sports fans last night i got the impression that most of them are just people who drive into philly from allentown that's that's where the vocal people are really coming from uh more on all of that in a bit uh but yes gary russell won a fairly comfortable unanimous decision over tug nyambayar in the main event guillermo rigendal won a less comfortable split decision over laborio solis in the co-feature and in by far the best fight of the night, Jaime Arboleda survived a 12th round knockdown to win a split decision over Jason Velez in the opener. So it was kind of a mixed bag. Some thrills, some uh, whatever you'd call what Guillermo Rigondeau does, uh, and a whole lot of ass crack. Now, how's that for a tease? Stay tuned if you want to know what the hell Raskin is talking about. Uh, but all in all, good to get out for a night and uh, hang out ringside for a Showtime card. Well, we'll talk a bit more about ringside impressions in a bit, although I'm now really, really <laughs> disturbed about that aspect of the conversation. <laughs> but first, let's bring in somebody else who was there uh, and indeed calling the fight uh, on Showtime. Uh, joining us now for the latest installment of a segment we call Post Fight with Polly. We welcome former two-time champ, Polly the Magic Man Malinaji. Polly, welcome back to the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Hey, man, my pleasure, man. How are you guys doing? Good, we're doing good. all right. We're doing all right. A uh, little little sluggish after a late night at the fights, but uh, we're powering through. And uh, in the uh, in the main event, Gary Russell Jr. won a unanimous decision against Tug Nyambayar. And for most of the first half of the fight, it looked as if there was nothing King Tug could do to Russell. But he kept coming. And in the last third of the fight, he had some success. In your view, how was Tug able to have the success he did have, and what could he have done to be more effective? Like, was there any way he actually could have won this fight? I think I think it was a matter of just trying to be consistent. You know, I think he he never gave up on his game plan, and he never he never uh, stopped believing in, in his ability to to corner to corner Russell to to eventually get to him. You know, mm-hmm. Russell is really a master of distance and a master of uh, great positioning. You know. But Nyambar also is uh, is un- very understanding, very cognizant of, of defensive and offensive positioning. So, regardless of how he was pressuring Russell, he wasn't overcommitting so that he was he was get, uh, opening himself up to get clobbered uh, for the traps Russell would be setting. So, so Russell would have to basically it became a really high speed chess match to where like mm-hmm. Russell was controlling the distance and wanting to make Nyambar pay for the, the pressure, but 
he wasn't Benayan Bar wasn't committing enough, at least over committing enough to where Russell can make him pay and break him down. Mm. So what ends up happening is it's a battle of positioning. It's a battle of almost chicken. Who's going to bust positioning more? But really, it's up to Nyambar to bust his positioning more and take chances because he was the one falling behind. But right. he kept he kept patient and he kept patient, figuring and understanding that eventually this mental pressure may break Russell a little bit. Now, obviously, it never broke Russell, but what it did was it it, it ended up fatiguing him a little bit and enough to uh, to land some you know pretty good shots and pretty good combinations late in the fight. But you still have to credit Russell because it's not easy to stay mentally calm and mentally poised when you have that kind of pressure coming for you. It's not the all out. Marcos Maidana type of body to body pressure. Right. What it is is when you're being when you're being pressed, you're looking for the guy to make mistakes. You're looking for the guy to be frustrated and overcommit. And Nyambar was simply cutting the ring off, shooting simple shots. Obviously not enough to win rounds, but what it was doing was it was keeping him in Russell's face and in punching position in Russell's face. So Russell had to be alert all the time, all the time, all the time. And so yes, Russell was alert all the time, and Russell did enough work to win the rounds. What it was doing was the combination of, of mental and physical stress. It it it, it, it can break you. It, it, it's it's hard to really explain, but it can they can break you because the guy's the guy's presenting himself in a very dangerous position consistently. He was cutting off the ring. Yes, Russell was able to make some juking and jiving movements to, you know, create, find the spaces and escape at times. And also his jab was really uh, a big difference in in the in, in the fight. But um, Nyambar was uh, he was uh, effective. It just it takes time for that for the fruits yeah. of that labor to to show themselves and possibly in a 15 round fight this would have really been more more uh, more expressed but mm. uh, and it's more about and it's a round fight you know uh, nine bar kind of runs out of time mm. in that in that fight and 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 of course like I said Russell has to be given credit for that as well because uh, a lesser fighter will 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 uh, sort of start to not not fold and quit but also start to fold and make mistakes under the pressure Nyambar is putting there. And if you start to make mistakes and you start to bust your positioning, Nyambar will, will be the one to take advantage. By the same time, credit Nyambar for not busting his positioning when, when Russell was using those jabs and using those combinations because it keeps the stress on Russell. Mm. What is it about Russell that makes him such a hard opponent to overcome? I mean, obviously, he, you know, one, the obvious trite answer is that speed kills, but there's a lot more to it than the fact that Gary Russell has very fast hands, right? I mean, he's a smart fighter yeah, he's, in there. He's technically, technically very sound, and like I said, his sense of positioning is impeccable. So even if you make him get him making a defensive move, he's never out of position defensively. There's many ways you can slip a punch, and, and, and many times if you slip a punch, uh, a less-versed fighter will slip, a, slip punches in ways where he can't, punch back, you know, and you're not to say that you always have to punch back, but you want to always give the illusion that you can punch back when you make a defensive move if you have to. Now, Russell, again, he doesn't always punch back because that can be timed if you're always punching back. But the way he's making his defensive moves, he's always on balance. And when he's always on balance, sometimes he's shooting, sometimes he's not. But as the opponent who's chasing him, you realize that this guy's always on balance. So you can't really come out of pocket. You can't really overexert yourself because He's on balance to punch at any given point. And if you overexert yourself, the punches will come flying and make you pay for that. So it becomes hard to really pressure him. It becomes harder to, to stress him. You know, you, you can stress him mentally, but physically he's working and he's on, he understands what you're doing. You know, I, I thought, I thought the, the level of boxing last night was really, really interesting. You know, I, I really felt as I was watching the whole show last night, even Rigondeau, you know, it's not always the most exciting method of boxing, but, um, I thought the level of boxing that main event and what Rigondi I was doing, I, I, I really was, as I was watching it, saying, this is going to go over a lot of people's heads, what's happening here, because it's, it's just, 
it's 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 trigonometry of boxing and it's and and most people are are at a grade school level of, of of intelligence when they're watching fights so it i i felt like it, it wouldn't be appreciated as much uh, uh and i i felt that in the main event as well because it was a good fight but it was also very 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 tactical but in in the way it was tactical was i thought it was really brilliant yeah, I, I was a good math student, but I still hated trigonometry. Um, and and but we will we will talk about R- Rigandau. But one uh, one more question about Russell first is just um, you know he he's talked about moving up after this, maybe all the way to 135 pounds. How do you think he'll fare at the higher weights? And and would it be a mistake in your view for him to jump two divisions when he can still make 126 easily? I give him uh, props for the enthusiasm. He can't get the fights uh, that he wants, uh, and it's, I think it's a shame because a guy with his skill set should be given these big fights, and we should be able to watch him against these big fighters, and these other fighters should be forced to fight him. Uh, and I think it's been a shame that uh, it hasn't been as it hasn't come to fruition and been that way. So the way he explains it is maybe these guys will fight me if they feel like they have a size advantage or, you know, maybe some of the bigger guys, you know, the, the big guns in, in, the, in the higher weight classes, you know, maybe they'll fight me because the guys in my weight class will fight me. Maybe the guys in the bigger weight classes will fight me figuring that, hey, yes, I'm good, but I'm, they also have a size advantage on me. So uh, they figure they need some kind of advantage to take me on and maybe the lightweights will do that because they'll feel like they'll, uh, they're a little bit bigger. So I think that's the way he's reasoning it. I, uh, I think it's a shame that it has to come to that. Uh, but I, 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 anytime Gary Russell fights and he gets to showcase his skills, I, I, I'm, I'm a fan and I, I love to watch it. I think it's a treat for any boxing fan, but he, he does put himself in danger of, uh, of being broken down by bigger fighters, of course. Mm. Right. Mm. So talking to people moving weight divisions, uh, let's, let's talk now about, uh, Rigan Deo. Um, at the age of 39, he actually moved down in weight. Um, and, and scored a split decision win over Laborio Solis at Bantamweight. And look, on the one hand, I thought early on, especially, um, it looked, the, the eye test kind of sort of suggested that maybe he was a little bit slower, his legs were a bit stiffer. But as the fight kind of went on, he showed he still has those lightning fast counter punches. He's still got great defensive reactions. He's still able to lay traps and move around the ring. It felt largely like the old Rigandau rather than an old Rigandau. Uh, did you see any signs there looking at him that, yeah, okay, he's having to adapt to being 39 years old? Um, yeah, a little bit, you know, he, he's definitely, guys are able to cut the gap on him a little bit easier. You know, he doesn't, um, he's, he's not as completely, and his, and his, and his reflexes are not as sharp as they were. I mean, he, this is a guy that made, uh, a guy who was just fighter of the year, Norino Donaire, basically fight with his hands in his pocket, you know, at, at the time he fought him, you know, it's not that he did what he did to Norino Donaire, it's what he did to Norino Donaire at the time they fought, you know? Mm-hmm. So this is, a, this is a guy that can make you put your hands in your pocket and basically make you look like you weren't even fighting, you know? Mm. Um, and, and, and control you while he's standing right in front of you, you know? Um, I don't think he has those kind of reflexes anymore. I think he has a ring IQ. Mm-hmm. But I think, I, I think I got the sense that, especially once he hurts all these, that I got the sense that the entire time, while I'm thinking that he's slowing down and maybe, maybe um, you know, his time is passing him, what he's actually doing is he's programming everything Solis is doing. You know, he's programming the distance because he wasn't throwing anything really all that violently in the first half of the fight, you know? And then suddenly, these violent, violent left hands start coming out of nowhere in the second half of the fight. And it seemed like it took him, maybe it takes him a little longer to program the distances. You know, I think he's still at risk um, against a busy fighter. And I think at his age, it's harder to be busy. Um, and, it's harder to, and it's harder to control guys who want to be busy and, and make them put their hands in their pocket. But, so I think he's still at risk against certain kind of guys. But, but trust, 
one thing. He's programming. He's like a computer, and he's pro- his his brain is processing everything as he's being pressured. Even though he may look like he's losing, he may look like he's not doing anything. He was processing because he started committing to every single left hand in the second half of the fight, and he couldn't miss. You know. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I felt like he was just programming the distance, programming the way the way Solis was gonna, was coming in and whatnot. You know. And uh, it's almost a shame, you know, that. You know, I, I think this guy also is one of these guys that has not been able to be appreciated because it's it's just a different level of IQ. But I think as far as going down in weight, I don't think the guy was ever naturally even 122 pounds. You know, he was a small guy who was just going to different weight classes just to just to try to get fights because he, you know, he, he couldn't he couldn't get anybody to fight him. You know, uh, so you know, in the fighter meetings when we were speaking uh, the day before the fight, he actually mentioned to us that he would consider going down to 115 pounds to fight for WBC title. Hmm. Uh, and he could, he could make the weight, you know? And I think that champion is Juan Francisco Estrada. So it would be an interesting fight if they would, uh, if they would uh, make Rigondeau and uh, Rigondeau and, uh, and Juan Francisco Estrada, you know? But I also think to control Juan Francisco Estrada uh, in, the way, in the way he was able to eventually control Solis is a bit tougher. You know, I do, I do think he's got to be busier against Estrada than he, than, he, than he was in this fight last night, you know? Uh, again, it's not the same Donaire who, who was able to basically put one of the pound for pound best fighters in the world, and Onido Donaire at the time, make him fight with his hands in his pocket. I don't think it's that same Donaire. So I don't think he can do that to Estrada if he fights in a not so busy style. But I got to give credit to Ronnie Shields because he really captained that whole ship last night. You know, uh, when it was time to really step it up, he, he knew how to motivate Rigo in the proper way to say, hey, okay, you know, we know what you're doing, but you've got to do it with some activity, you know? And he knew he knew when to say it. He did. It's not just that he said it. He knew when to say it. You know, he knew not to say it too early. You know what I'm saying? He knew not to really stress Rigo too early because I think even he can appreciate. He's been around him enough to appreciate the intelligence and what Rigo's doing, even though it may not seem effective. And, but when it was time, he knew he, he knew what that he had to pressure him a little bit. And sure enough, uh, Guillermo Rigondeau answered. Right. And you, you talked about his style going over a lot of people's heads. We certainly heard that from the crowd in Allentown starting as early as the second round, there was booing. Um, Obviously you appreciate his artistry, but at the same time, do you find yourself wanting more when you watch Rigondeau fight? Do you, do you leave a fight like that or during a fight like that? Are you a little disappointed that he isn't producing even more offense and making it a little more entertaining? Well, the thing about it is, yes, it's a professional boxing is a business, so people expect you to entertain them and then to sell this tough sell in a certain manner. But uh, he, the effectiveness he has offensively also comes because he's not as busy. You know, he he, can, he shocks you when he when he throws these shots. You know, he mm-hmm. shocks you. He gets knockdowns. He gets knockouts. And the reason they're so shocking is because they're so precise and they're so spontaneous. But the spontaneity is part of the shock and the reason they're so precise is because they're not that often, you know, he's kind of processing, processing. He's no, he's not wasting shots and he knows when to bite like a Cobra. You know what I'm saying? Cause right. when he shoots those shots, when he shot those shots last night, there was a lot of weight behind those shots. So he, he, he got to the point where he decides I'm not going to shoot like this. I'm going to shoot in a less of a, less of a violent manner or, or even not at all for a while. But once I get you, I'm going to step in everything into these shots because there's no way I'm going to miss them. He kind of knows he's that good. He kind of knows like where, where the kind of punches he's going to throw, he's not going to miss them. You know, it's, it's almost, it's almost even over my head, you know, it's until I start to catch it and watch it. And I'm like, wow, this guy knew what he was doing, you know, like, because he's not 
just oh he just randomly shot a shot and and, he, and you know what he saved himself and he turned the fight around you know the fight wasn't going his way it's almost like it's part of the script for him you know okay. uh, at this point and at he's at his age especially he can't be active that that active i mean a little, uh, for to just not beat a dead horse if you're 40 years old and you're and you're fighting a, active rounds every round there's you're obviously on something so <laughs> so you know this is a, a, a this is a guy who's almost 40 years old he can't ha- give you the activity he can't give you the legs he had before but he wants to fight in the same style and he can do that with the IQ and intelligence to know how to still dead in the fight and then when he knows he's got you he's going to pounce and he's going to still step hard into those shots you know and those are the shots that control activity. Those are the shots that end up making, they used to make guys uh, put their hands in their pocket. Yes, they'd be a little bit more often at, at back in the days here and there, but they still weren't that often, you know? But they will be there just enough to make, make guys put their hands in their pocket, you know? He still has that ability, but it's probably a little bit less now. I think mm-hmm. an actor, I think a very active fighter. I think a guy has an, the opportunity to be a very active fighter. I just don't, don't think Solis was good enough last night. But I think mm-hmm. a better fighter uh, may get away with being more active against Donaire, I mean, against uh, Rizondiao than was uh, back in the day where like a guy like Donaire couldn't even do it. Right, right. The the opening bout was quite a contrast really with the other two. Uh, Jaime Arboleda coming back from a final, surviving a final round knockdown and, and a really storming finish from Jason Velez getting a, eking out a split decision. Hugely entertaining fight, but I'm a bit torn as to whether it was actually, if you know what I mean, like a good fight or whether it was hugely entertaining because neither guy seemed really interested in any defense and they were just going for it. I mean, you know what I mean? I mean, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, yeah. I think what those guys did last night was basically solidify themselves for another decent payday, I guess. You know, uh, even the lo- in losing, Velez remains a, remains a relatively uh, you know, known fighter, known commodity who can get be used as an opponent because he still uh, makes good fights and he's still uh, competitive, you know? And, right. But I don't think Arboleda... I don't think Arboleda gained that much more notoriety than Velez last night beating beating Velez. You know, I think they're both kind. Of, they both kind of just made a check last night, and they showed that they deserve to be on TV, and they they showed that they can get in the ring with anybody. But if I'm from a boxing business perspective, if I'm a guy who has one of the hot prospects or one of the fringe contenders, one of the budding contenders in their weight class, I mean, I'm looking at these guys as my opponent all over the place right. because they're 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 allergic to defense, but they come to fight. <laughs> you know, so it's, you can. You can you can put your guy who you're looking to make impression with against either of them, and and you know get your guy if he's good uh, of that level will probably knock them out and look good, and 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 it'll it'll get good press off of it. You know I, I think that's basically what they did for themselves. I don't think they're scaring any of the champions. What they did do last night was probably put themselves in a position to be back on TV in a fight that they'll probably lose. Yeah, I mean, this was this was our first look at Arboleda on Showtime. And yeah, I was curious for, for your takeaway. Sounds like you weren't terribly impressed with him overall, even if you were entertained. What, what do you see as one or two key areas where, where he needs to improve? Or, or, or can he improve? Is this kind of just who he is and he'll be a fun TV fighter and he's not going much farther than that? I mean, some attention to detail for sure. You know, uh, this bad hand positioning. Um, you know, he stands right in front of you, and, and suddenly he's he's squared up with his hands down, and after he throws a punch. You know, I understand sometimes you do that to bait guys, but he's not doing it to bait guys. He's actually his defensive out is is just all over the place. You know, and so he gets himself clipped with shots on the out, or he misjudges his distance on the out. You know, um, or even on the in sometimes. You know, or he's not active enough with the jab. You know, just uh, just things that. You know, the opponent can just throw any which shot he wants to, and, and he has a chance to land it. You know, that's not supposed to happen in a professional boxing match against a guy who knows how to fight. You can't just 
hope to throw a winging shot and hope to land it. You gotta, you're supposed to be able to set a guy up. You throw a winging shot and hope to land it. You know, you, you're most likely going to miss. Most likely you're going to end up paying too. But Arboleda gives you the, um, the, the impression that if you just throw a shot at him, you might land, you know? So you're, you're always kind of in the fight. You're always believing you win the fight. Right. All right. Hey, look, Paulie, thanks so much. It was a good night of fights, uh, really entertaining stuff. And as always, it's great for you uh, to have you joining us. And we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you, brother. Absolutely. Talk soon, guys. All right. Thanks again there to uh, Paulie. Uh, and so, Eric, look, so as we mentioned, uh, you were at the PPL arena on Saturday night. Um, not a regular pit stop on the fight circuit. You already talked a little bit about it. So, um, Give us a little bit more of, of your overall impressions, and specifically the impression I, I wanted to get uh, your answer to. Uh, it sounded on TV as if there were an awful lot of Mongolians in that crowd. I had no idea. I didn't know anything about Allentown, apart from it being the 233rd largest city in the United States, as everybody knows, of course. Of course. But, um, is it like Mongolia Central here? Is it <laughs> this is that little Ulaanbaatar? What was going on there? Yeah, the, the Mongolians or Mongolian-Americans, perhaps, uh, Yeah, showed up in droves. I'm not sure if that's uh, that there are a lot of Mongolian-Americans in Allentown or just people uh, made the trip from uh, anywhere within 100 miles or so in all directions uh, to root for King Tug. I don't know. There, there was also a decent Puerto Rican contingent chanting Boricua during the Jason Velez okay. fight uh, and certainly heard some Gary Russell fans. Uh, they must have driven in from the D.C. area, but the Mongolian flags were everywhere and uh, they helped make it lively throughout the main event. Um, it was a good, fairly intimate setting for a fight. It's like a 10,000-seat arena for concerts oh, and minor might. league okay. hockey. Well, yeah, but they set it up to seat about 4,000 for this show. They kind of, like, blocked off, curtained off half the arena. And so it sort of felt in between a, a club show vibe and an arena boxing card. And it, it was it was a, just the right size and a good crowd. Uh, and it was good to see some of our friends from Showtime, including... Uh, Chris de Blasio, Courtney Mogg. I met uh, PR guy Steve Pratt in person for the first time, uh, but also a lot of former Ring Magazine staffers in attendance. There was uh, me, Nigel Collins, Bill Detloff, Joe Sanliquido, uh, dressed to the nines as always, uh, and uh, of course, uh, Steve Farhood. Uh, always great to see Steve. Nice. Um, all right, let's talk a little bit about the uh, some of the fights. We'll do this uh, as we did with the old uh, HBO uh, cards in which, you know, uh, the person who was not ringside will pepper the one who was with a few questions and maybe chime in with some thoughts as well. So, sure. um, uh, so let me ask you, first of all, how you scored the main event. So I had it 117, 111 for Russell, uh, the same as the middle score of the three official cards. I gave Tug rounds 6, 9, and 12. Uh, I marked down 5 and 10 as close also, uh, but 6 was a close one that I did give to Tug. I thought the final punch stats, which were extremely close, I thought those were closer than the fight itself. You know, Tug was trying and he did win some rounds, but I never for a second after the first two rounds really thought he had any chance of winning. I thought going in that he had an outside chance, but once I saw the difference in hand speed and saw that Gary Russell was pretty well dialed in and, and, and just sharp and on his game... It wasn't a bad fight or a boring fight by any means, but there was just zero drama for me. How did you score yeah. it? Uh, I had it the same. No, I had it slightly closer. I had it 16-12. I did okay. give him 10 as well. Okay. Yes, that's right. Yes, I gave him 10 as well. Um, but uh, same, but the same in that. So for me, I gave him four rounds and three of them were three of the final four. Right. Uh, dur during which time Russell, particularly at the very end, 
in the final round was just having a good time in there, I think. Uh, I think especially once he won the 11th right. and stemmed any possibility of, of, of any kind of final surge, uh, he sort of half gave up on the 12th, I thought, Gary Russell. He was just yeah. smiling in there and just having a good time. So It, it, was, it, a, it was a don't do anything stupid kind of round. For it him. was, wasn't yeah. it? Exactly. <clears throat> um, but yeah, no, even when it felt as if, okay, now, and, and Paulie was talking about how Tug was, you know, constantly in his face and trying to sort of, you know, put maintain that pressure and maintain that close distance. And even when he was starting to do that, maybe it was like, like, like uh, uh, Paulie said, the, the realization that there were only twelve rounds and that he was leaving it very late. And we know that Gary Russell isn't the kind of guy who's going to fold. Right. Um, that, that yeah, it didn't have that drama in it. You, you felt that. He was sticking to a very good game plan, which was about as good a game plan as you can have against a guy like Russell. It just wasn't quite good enough. Um, but it was good. I thought. I thought he did. I thought he acquitted himself well at Nambiar, and, and he surely did well enough that he deserves and will probably get another opportunity. Um, who would you like to see him fight next, King Tug? Uh, honestly, almost anyone else in the top 10. Uh, I, yeah. I feel like he'd have more success against just about any of them than he did against Russell because yeah. Russell is that fast and smart and is probably the most talented fighter in the division. The one other guy who might totally dominate Tug is Shakur Stevenson. Yep. But we don't know for sure yet if Stevenson is on that level. He just has the look of a guy who might be comparable to Russell skill-wise and talent-wise. But, you know, you look at some of the other names, Leo Santa Cruz and Josh Warrington at the top, if Santa Cruz is still a featherweight, which he may be mm -hmm. done with the division. Uh, Jesse Magdaleno, a little lower down. Those are all competitive fights, in my view. I guess if I'm managing Tug, I want to put him in next as a slight favorite or even money instead of put him in as a slight underdog coming off a loss. So I would look at a fight like Jesse Magdaleno and say that that is a, a perfect kind of fight for Tug. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's that's a definite uh, one one to look at. I was just looking at, um, you know, sort of who's available to him, like on the PBC side of the street. Um, sure. I was thinking like maybe like a Miguel Flores who just came off with that decision loss to Leo Santa Cruz. So that right. would be interesting because then you get a chance to sort of compare yourself, as it were, yeah. again, you know, so that might be a nice one. Um, uh, another name that really came to mind that would be interesting, Kid Galahad, who's got a pretty good win over Claudio Marrero over the weekend. Um, you know, maybe go across the pond, fight him. That could be interesting. Or a Carl Frampton, even. Um, yeah. Good fights could be made without having to go across the street. And, and like you said, I... I do have that little bit of a feeling that maybe stylistically Shakur Stevenson just is, even though it'd be difficult to make it anyway. Um, yeah, maybe not the right star matchup for him, at least right now. Um, but what about Russell? So let's, we've already talked about this a little bit um, with Paulie. So what is next for him? So let's, let's just assume that he actually is going to fight again this year, that he's serious this time right. um, about getting another fight or two in. What do you think? Are we going to see him at 26? Are we going to see him at 30? Is he going to go up to 35? Is it Leo Santa Cruz at 26 or 30? What do you think his options are here? I think it might be time to let the Santa Cruz obsession end. That That's the fight mm. Russell has been asking for for a while now, and it hasn't happened yet, so I'm, I'm not optimistic. And, you know, we don't know what negotiations and discussions have looked like. We right. don't know who's actually to blame for it not happening, given his inactivity. It's fair to take anything Russell says about wanting fights with a grain of salt. Sure. Uh, my personal take is that he probably shouldn't move all the way to 135 unless 
he can get the Loma rematch that he's been pining for. And he's obviously not getting that next since Loma seems on track to face Teofimo Lopez in the spring. But, you know, I look at 130. He's already beaten Jojo Diaz in eh, pretty good fight. Um, mm-hmm. Burchell would be an interesting clash of styles. Uh, but the fact is, Russell still makes featherweight comfortably. You know, we, mm-hmm. we, intervie- we interviewed him on the day of the weigh in his previous fight. He was so cool and comfortable and relaxed and not killing himself to make yeah. w- make weight, obviously. So uh, why not keep busy against other good featherweights and wait for Emmanuel Navarrete or, or Murajan Akhmadaliev yeah. to move up? They're, they're good 122-pounders who will eventually become 126-pounders. Um, I think Russell has options, but I, I also think he's a bit of a risk is not worth the reward guy right now. Yeah. Uh, not not to the same extent as a Demetrius Andrade, who we talked about last week, but his speed makes him not the first choice for many fighters. Um, so what, what, what do you think? Do you, do you disagree and, and think that a Santa Cruz fight still can or will happen? I don't want to let that go. <laughs> okay. Um, but I think you're probably right, right? I mean, there's been all this... It, when, when you have a situation where there's all this jibber-jabber back and forth for so long... Uh, you have to figure that it's for some reason somebody doesn't want to make that happen. But I wonder if the dynamics might have changed a wee bit um, in that the talk of late, the sort of momentum of late has been for a Leo Santa Cruz, Javante Davis clash. And for reasons that we'll talk about later, I suspect that might be off the table for now. Um, Does Santa Cruz suddenly find himself maybe looking at a really big, potential payday suddenly not finding that there thinking oh crap now i have to fight gary russell after all and so maybe that becomes more viable i don't know it sort of at the moment feels like it makes the most sense for, for the two of them but you know i was wondering if it's probably too soon right for somebody like a um a colbert or a stephen fulton or something like that to, to you know they could trade it they might look at it and think oh here's an opportunity to really make my name i could knock off gary russell but it's probably too early for either of those guys isn't it i mean yeah. So failing that, so failing that, I, I, I don't know. I would just like, you know, any of the guys we just talked about with King Tug would also be fine against for Gary Russell, if we, as long as we just meant we got to see Gary Russell. But right. you know, the other thing we talked about, you know, when we were talking to him, he wasn't just talking about like being comfortable with making his way. He seems a man who's actually comfortable with not fighting. Eh? He just feels mm-hmm. like. From what he said to us, like he's he wants to be around his family. He wants he just seems to have different priorities, doesn't he? And we want to see him fight a lot. I'm not sure he has that same drive, really. Yeah, but, but and as much as he says so. Yeah, it just I don't I I hope for his sake that that if that's the way things go for him, that he will be comfortable with that years from now. That he I I hope he's right, not right. going to look back with regrets that. Boy, when I was young and able, you know, we've seen fighters yeah. who didn't didn't do in their primes what we wanted them to do. And then uh, and then a little later on, when it was a little too late, suddenly they wanted to fight everybody and, and paid the price for it. Uh, so I, I hope Gary Russell is not heading down a path like that or. But, yeah, I mean, look, it, there's nothing wrong with having the priority that uh, I'm, I'm making enough money fighting as often as I need to uh, and uh, spending time with my family and being a good dad and, and all that. And so uh, if indeed he is as comfortable with that, as he says, then yeah, it's hard to begrudge him the approach he's taking. Yeah. All right. Answer the co-main um, <laughs> simple question. Is it safe to say 
that the very brief era we discussed earlier uh, in the preview of Gamma Rigandau Action Fighter <laughs> is now officially over just about as soon began, based on what we saw the other night. I think so. Uh, I found that pretty dreadful uh i realized that this uh this fits me into the category of people probably will say it went over my head yeah but i i really found that awful to watch uh he 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 got a little wobbled in that first round and then proceeded to do almost nothing for the next five rounds and i realized he was setting some traps gauging his distance setting himself up to do what he did in the second half of the fight but i'm not going to give him rounds while he's doing that i only gave uh rigandial one of the first six rounds um, okay. And then he dropped Solis in the seventh and was in control most of the rest of the way. But, you know, some of those rounds, Paulie can say what he wants. I can't score a round for a guy who's circling, at times running, and hardly throwing any punches. I feel like uh, Rigo has read uh, too many Willie Pep press clippings about that <laughs> mythical round he won without throwing a punch. Um, and as I said, the, the crowd started booing in the second round and really never stopped. Uh, I heard some excellent heckling from the Allentown faithful, uh, begging either fighter to do something. Uh, and you know what? They bought tickets. They have a right to express themselves right. colorfully. Um, but now I'll give you the, the inside scoop from the arena, something I assumed you didn't know about watching on TV. This was actually much more entertaining than the fight and frankly helped all of us get through the fight without falling asleep. One of Solis's cornermen was wearing sweatpants with something heavy in his pockets, I guess, and as best I could tell, was not wearing underwear. Uh, Because when he got up on the apron after each round, we were getting a ridiculous amount of ass cracks shown to us, and the fans on our side of the ring were not quiet about it. Uh, There were loud groans at first. Uh, there were cheers when he came out for one round with the pants hiked up, uh, followed by groans when they slipped down again. Chance of ass crack, ass crack, and uh, and heckles during the fight. You know, when, when Rigo was boring everybody stiff, there was a guy yelling, give us the ass crack guy, he's more entertaining than this. Uh, it kind of, it switched from disgust to amusement uh, after after a few rounds. Uh, and, and this, Kieran, is the kind of insight you can only get when wow. one of the podcasters attends the fight in person. There you go. There you go. Memo to Brian Daly. This is why we have to go to everything. <laughs> yes. You just <laughs> never know when there will be a memorable show of butt cleavage. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, so where does uh, where does Rigo fit in 118 pounds then? If, if that's where he stays or, you know, right. as Paulie mentioned, you know, we even going down to 115. And as part of that, with that question, there's a little fun thought experiment. Well, I think it's fun. Um, Paulie, you know, mentioned what Rigo did to Nonita Donaire the first time they fought. Seven years later... Uh, does he still beat Donaire, or does he beat him as comprehensively as he did beforehand if they were to rematch right now? Hmm. Um, I guess before I uh, answer the Nonito questions, that that is a really interesting thought experiment. Um, Just kind of where he fits in. This is something that I tweeted. I I said, shame on Rigo for letting the fight be that close. Um, You you know, Hmm. if he's beating Laborio Solis by a split decision, and I know that I picked Solis to win, um, but Hmm. that was more about thinking Rigo might be defensively washed, which he isn't. Um, But if if he's beating Solis by split decision, he obviously needs to be better to win against top Bantamweights. Um, You know, I saw some people on Twitter saying they really want to see Inoue versus Rigondeau. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, he could give Inoue some problems, but... I just don't want to see it. I, I, Rigo doesn't right. really deserve it off this performance. And if it happens, he'll do everything he can to make the fight a stinker. Um, 
And and I feel the same way about a Nadito rematch. I don't have any desire to see it, even though it's obviously interesting in terms of who would win. I guess I'd favor Rigo. His his style is still tough for Nadito. Maybe he lets Nadito out hustle him uh, and win rounds somewhat ineffectively, like Solis was doing, and that's something Pauly talked about that a better fighter than Solis uh, might be able to just outwork Rigo and win enough rounds. But I'd probably make Rigo a, a small favorite there. What about you? Uh, you know, all the, my notes here about this basically are, are along the lines of what you just said. Um, you know, so obviously. Donaire is going to fight Nordin Ubali next. And I guess I wouldn't mind seeing the winner of that up against Riga. I, it, would be, it would be more intellectually interesting than a fight that I would want to see, which is very much along the lines, I think, of what you're saying. Um, and more so, you know, you're talking about how Gary Russell, he's a risk for anybody to want to fight. And it's all the more so with Rigando because at least Russell looks interesting and is entertaining when he's going about his business. You know, it's Regan, though, he's tremendous to f- risk for anyone to fight, not only in terms of the fact that he's being very difficult to beat, but also because he's just going to make you probably look bad and make the whole fight possibly look bad. Um, you know, so no one's going to be jumping at the opportunity to fight him, and very few fans are going to be demanding to see him. So I guess unless, you know, Uncle Al throws a gajillion dollars at somebody, um, I think where he fits is a th- 39 years old, he may have to fight his way into a mandatory position to make people start to fight him, don't you think? I mean, that's who's going to voluntarily fight Guillermo Rigandau even now, unless there's a lot of money in it. Right. Yeah. So anyway, uh, let's finally the the opening bout. Uh, As we mentioned, Jaime Arbeleda prevailing over Jason Velez. By split decision, the scores were 115-112 for Velez and two scores of 114-113 for Arboleda. Uh, at least on my TV, the crowd did not seem to like that at all. It was certainly a very close fight, um, but I, I, I assumed they were influenced um, by Velez's storming 12th round. But also, just from what you said earlier on, maybe they were just very pro-Velez from the get-go. Um, how did you score it and what was your do you have anything to add really to what Paulie had to say about that opening fight well yeah i mean the the crowd was biased to to be clear and, and not that there's anything at all wrong with thinking velez won but uh there were a lot of puerto rican fans there cheering for velez all the way and when you combine that with as you said how the fight finished that he scored a knockdown and nearly scored a second knockdown and really rallied at the end uh, I thought it was totally predictable that they would boo the decision if it went to Arboleda, but I, I thought it was perfectly fair. I had Arboleda up 7-4 to four through 11. I know Steve Farhood had the same score, and then Velez got a 10-8 round in the 12th when he needed a 10-7 for a draw. Um, so, you know, easy to see it going to Velez by a point, of course, but I, I thought the judges got it right. Uh, but that all kind of buries the lead, which is that this was just a very entertaining fight, and, and thank goodness for it because it was a long night of boxing, 36 rounds, ending after midnight, and it would have felt like a chore overall if not for the entertainment that Arboleda and Velez gave us. Right. Uh, good piece of matchmaking there, very even, good styles, a little sloppy at times. They both seem to tire yep. around the eighth or so, but lots of good hard punches landing and a great dramatic finish. We talked going in about Arboleda's left hook versus Velez's chin, well, Velez's chin won that battle and gave him a chance to almost take advantage of the questionable Arboleda chin. Uh, but Arboleda also showed other weapons besides the left hook. I was impressed with his uppercuts. He fought well. Maybe his power is less than advertised. 
I tell you, I'd love to see a rematch. No, no good reason these guys can't yeah. open another Showtime Championship boxing card four or five months from now. Um, so, yeah, what what did you think of the decision and of Arboleda? And are, are you with me in wanting a rematch? Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that, the rematch. But no, great call. Exactly. Why not? Uh, it, it was indeed really, really close. Um, I also had it 114-113 Arboleda. Um, but with some uncertainty, there were a couple of close rounds in there. I sure. Gave the eleventh to Arboleda and almost gave it to Velez. I could have had it one fourteen, one thirteen the other way. I think without any problem at all. Really, it was just close. Um, and yeah, it was. I think Velez showed us. And again, Paulie sort of touched on this. You know what he is, which is he's a fun fighter. He's going to put forth maximum effort. Uh, he's going to be a dangerous opponent. Um, he's going to ask questions. But he's just that bit short at the top level. Um, uh, And Arboleda, you know, there was a wee bit, I wouldn't say hype, but, you know, he was perhaps viewed as the promising prospect going in. And I I, I agree with Paulie a little bit that maybe he almost took a little bit of a half step back in that he just... The word, you mentioned it. The word that I put down in my note was sloppy. Um, and it was. They were both a bit sloppy in there. Um, but I almost hate to be critical of these guys because they laid everything out there. Yeah. Um, and, and they just put forth an absolutely tremendous effort. And there were momentum shifts. You know, Velez early on. Then Abeleda in most of the middle rounds. And then Velez coming on strong at the end. Um uh, so yeah, one hates to be overly critical. I'd like to see them both on TV again. Uh, they deserve that opportunity. And yeah, you're right. Good call. Why not just have them do it again and open up another show? I think that'd be a fantastic call. All right. Matchmakers Raskin and Mulvaney demand it. There you go. All right. So your Keystone State remains the center of the Showtime Boxing Universe next week as well, uh, as indeed Philadelphia itself is the site for next week's Showbox, the new generation, which is airing not one, uh, 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 not two, uh, 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 (laughs) not three, but four fights this Valentine's Day, Friday, February 14th, starting at 10 p.m. Eastern and Pacific. Uh, The main event, 10 rounds or less, in the lightweight division, sees a showbox veteran who's had something of a mixed bag of outings on the show over the last year or two. Uh, Thomas Matisse he scored a disputed win and escaped with a disputed draw against Jorah Hamazarian, who we saw in another draw on Showbox last week in 2018. And last year lost disappointingly to Will Madera before bouncing back to score a stoppage win over the previously undefeated Michael Dutchover in September. And that win over Dutchover came as a result of a cut that uh, Matisse uh, officially opened up with a punch, but he was behind on points at the time. So, or like I said, all a bit of a mixed bag. Um, did he get a little bit lucky against Dutch over last time out? Is he, after his sort of indifferent up and down series of showings on Showbox over the past couple of years, in a wee bit of danger of finding himself drinking at the last chance saloon if he doesn't get the win on Friday against his opponent, who is one Isaac Pitbull Cruz? I'll start with the the first question about the Dutch over fight. Yes, he got a little lucky that his punch opened up a cut bad enough to end the fight. Uh, but Matisse was coming on, and the two scorecards that had him way behind were questionable hometown cards. On my scorecard, he was behind by just one point and very much in range to win the fight even without the cut. It was one of Matisse's more complete performances that we've seen. He, he used his jab well. He wasn't sleepwalking through any rounds like he sometimes does. It was a good win, but it wasn't, you know, some kind of breakout win that proves Matisse is ready to be a legit contender. He needs to string a few good wins together to get to that point. 
And that's where uh, this fight with Pitbull Cruz comes in. So to, to answer your second question, where does it leave Matisse if he loses to Cruz? It depends how he loses, of course. Uh, is right. it a, a narrow decision or a bad knockout? Uh, but win or lose in, in this fight, I think there's one opportunity that makes a lot of sense for Matisse. Uh, and I guess uh, there's a bit of a theme developing here with me calling for rematches, but uh, a rematch with Dutchover. You know, there's there's a mm-hmm. built-in storyline there. Can Dutchover avenge his only loss? The first fight was inconclusive. I think no matter what happens in Matisse Cruz, Matisse Dutchover 2 makes a good showbox mm-hmm. fight. Um, but yeah, Matisse is, is 29 years old, so... Yeah, last chance saloon is maybe a, a bit much, but he does take a significant step from prospect status to journeyman status if he loses on Friday in Philly. Um, so tell me a little about Cruz. D- does he seem to have the kind of style and experience to beat Matisse? Yeah, no, he just might. Um, so his nickname definitely reflects his, his fighting style. He's a, he's a crouch low bob and weave kind of guy. He'll come and he'll dig to the body and to the head with power punches. Um, there's very little artifice about this guy. Uh, he just goes about his business from what I've been able to tell. Uh, and there's a little bit of video of him out there. He just goes about his business fairly ruthlessly and efficiently. Um, not that it necessarily means anything, but for what it's worth, uh, he is ranked in the top 10 by one of the sanctioning bodies, which doesn't necessarily mean a thing, of course. Um, he is uh, quite a bit long- younger than Matisse. He's only 21. His record is 18-1-1 with 14 KOs. Um, nobody on his record stands out, even remotely, but basically pretty much all of his fights have been in Mexico. And there's, there's there can be a lot of difference between fighting apparent no-names in Mexico and fighting apparent no-names in, say, for example, Oklahoma. So... Um, you know, it's difficult to read too much into, into that record, but I don't want to give away too much before we start getting into predictions. But right. when you look at Matisse's struggles a bit against Madeira and Hamazarian and, and the way, you know, the nature of, of those struggles and the way that, that at times they those guys were fainting and slipping and firing punches from underneath. Yeah, he could. Not yet saying whether he will or he won't, but Cruz could actually definitely have the style to beat Matisse here. This is not a gimme uh, for uh, for Matisse at all. Um, in the co-main, we have a pair of super bantamweights. I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. Raiz, the beast, Alim, in an eight-rounder against Adam Mantequilla Lopez. Uh, Alim is undefeated, 15-0 with nine KOs. Uh, Lopez is 19-3-2, also with nine knockouts. Um, looking at the records, it seems like Alim is the A-side here, the favorite to slice through the buttery Lopez. Uh, is that about right? Well, I can't find betting odds on this fight to tell you who officially is the favorite, uh, but to bookmaker Raskin, it's pretty darn close. Uh, Alim has the spiffy perfect record, but Lopez says he represents a step up for Aleem, and, and he's right. He's almost certainly the best opponent Aleem has faced as a pro. Uh, and by the way, don't confuse Adam Montequilla Lopez with Adam Blue Nose Lopez, the featherweight right. who gave Oscar Valdez problems last year. Uh, but this Adam Lopez is similarly tough to get past. Uh, yes, he has three losses and two draws on his record. But the losses are against Arnold Hagai. That's a respectable loss. Uh, Daniel Roman. That's a respectable loss. Yeah. And by one point on all three cards against Jorge Diaz, Lopez has handed no fewer than three opponents their first defeats. And he has a tough style. He's a, a boxer counterpuncher. He's not going to be easy for Aleem to look good against. Aleem is more aggressive, more of a, a boxer puncher. These guys are both 29 years old. They're both eight-year pros. And I see them as pretty evenly matched. If Aleem is a top-notch prospect, if he's on that Hagai level at least, 
then he'll win. Uh, but I can't tell if he's on that level based on the opposition he's faced so far. And speaking of undefeated fighters who haven't been thoroughly tested yet, the first two fights on the card feature a total of four undefeated fighters. Opening the show is a 154-pound eight-rounder, Derek D-Man Coleman, 20 years old and 11-0 with eight KOs, against Joseph Action Jackson, 31 years old, 15-0 with 12 KOs. And following that, it's welterweight action as Montana Too Pretty Love, and if there's ever been a male boxer who sounded more like a female porn star than Montana Love, I haven't come across it. Maybe Mo Hooker. Maybe. Uh, anyway, it's uh, Montana Too Pretty Love, 12-0-1 with six KOs against Jericho Hands of Stone Walton, who is 16-0 with seven KOs. Kieran, I'll dump all the heavy lifting on you. Give us uh, the quick lowdown on these four prospects. Ah, that's fair enough. You were up late on Saturday night in, in Allentown. So yes. living it up with Paulie in downtown, I'm sure. Um <laughs> So, let, yeah, let's just take them a little bit in the, in the order you mentioned them, um, beginning with the opening contest. First of all, full disclosure, Derek Coleman is represented by Sheer Sports Management, a team with which I have close personal uh, involvement uh, through uh, our mutual very good friend, Rachel Charles. So I should always say that. Um, but what I can say about him is that he, although he very much does not like to talk about his upbringing and home life, he's a very quiet lad. Um, he's, very, this, he's very much a story, I think, of boxing saving his life. Um, and of other fighters at Kronk Gym, where the Detroit, he's a Detroit native, and uh, he initially trained there from a very, very young age. His grandfather took him to Kronk when he was about four. Uh, they all really took him under his wing. And Manny Stewart in particular, really taking him under his wing as a kid um, and, and sort of being a father figure that, that he didn't have. Um, he met Manuel when he was about five. And from the age of around nine, you know, Manny would, you know, look after him, watch film with him together. He would give him uh, weekly checks, uh, check in on him, give him money every time he won a fight uh, and stuff. So uh, that's an interesting story. One of the kids who Manny Stewart really quietly sort of looked after there. Uh, and he's in L.A. these days and he trains mostly out of wildcard. So he's gone from one storied gym to another. Uh, Sheer Sports certainly very high on the kid. Um, you know, his opponent, uh, Jackson, not a dissimilar pro record, uh, but whereas Coleman is 20, uh, Jackson is 31. He's been a pro for just four years, has very little amateur experience. And uh, you know how I said uh, fighting all your fights in Mexico can be a lot better than fighting them all in Oklahoma. Every one of Jackson's fights has been in North Carolina. So okay. his record may flatter him a little bit. That said, he was just in camp with Tony Harrison. Uh, so he's certainly been at least around some uh, high caliber boxing people and will have learned quite a lot from there. And nonetheless, you've got to figure probably Coleman will be the favorite here. Um, I really like there are some great bios here for the two guys in the second fight of the evening. Um, Jericho Hans of Stone Walton also started in boxing late. He didn't start the sport at all until he was 20 and turned pro at 25, which was just four years ago. Um, he's born in New Orleans and was a kid when Hurricane Katrina hit. Um, the story he has to tell is pretty incredible. Um, uh, he says, look, you know, grew up in New Orleans and so we were poor. And even if we wanted to leave when we knew the storm was coming, we couldn't. Uh, we had no choice to stay, he said, but to stay here, stay there. And whatever happened, happened. Um, and he said, listen to this, it's amazing. By us still staying there, when the hurricane hit, we had to swim out to take care of our family and get food. Wow. Um, his grandmother's house was right uh, by the river. Uh, water came, knocked her whole house down, he said, but they managed to get safe and got out by the grace of God. But here's the amazing thing, in, thing is, they escaped from New Orleans, went to Beaumont, Texas, 
And just one month after Katrina, Beaumont, Texas was hit by Hurricane Rita, which was even more powerful than Hurricane, Hurricane Katrina, even though it didn't have the same amount of damage. So then they had to hit the road again. Um, and here's the amazing thing. After this, after he went through all of this, he finally met his dad. He'd never met his dad up until that point. Uh, his father was a drug dealer. Um, and then shortly after that, his father was murdered by his best friend. Oh. Jericho, angry that having just met his father, he then had him taken away from him, shot the guy who killed his dad, although he didn't kill him, and did four years in juvenile detention. He says it's the only trouble he's ever been in in his life. But it was while in jail, after shooting the man who murdered his father, that he was introduced to boxing. And now here he is. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, man, boxing. You ask People ask me, what are you interested by? How come you're so interested in boxing? Stories like that. Right. Oh, it's, uh, interested in boxing. Is, it, is it too early for me to uh, claim the movie rights on this one? <laughs> Amazing, right? Yeah. Unbelievable. Okay, so his opponent, Montana Love has fought the likes, and you got to be a fighter if your name's Montana Love, right? It's like being called a boy named Sue, isn't it? It's, um, so he's fought the likes of Rashidi Ellis and Erickson Lubin in the amateurs. He claims to have a Silver Gloves tournament win over uh, Erickson Lubin. Um, his boxing career uh, has been interrupted by a 16-month stint in jail for grand theft of motorcycles, receiving stolen goods, misuse of a credit card, deception to obtain prescription drugs. Um, mm. The other thing that's also been a little bit of a hamper to his career certainly as an amateur so far not as a pro he has a sweet tooth uh yes according to his uncle quote he doesn't drink or smoke but he loves sweets twizzlers skittles and little <laughs> debbie cakes oh okay um uh, as an amateur he actually missed the finals of a tournament he was in because he snuck a whole bunch of sweets into his room the night before and couldn't make weight the next day <laughs> i still text him throughout the day to make sure he's staying on track says his uncle um his promoter says he really needs to win this fight uh two fights ago he got a draw against kenneth sims and his promoter says that even that was really a loss and, and that was a bit of a step up for him uh and he says this is a fight he really needs to be able to beat a guy like jericho walton or he becomes a stepping stone so his own promoter is saying that so you think, well, that's a lot of a lot of pressure then, but not for Montana Love. It's exciting to fight under the bright lights, he says. Some guys fold, but I was made for this. My name is Montana Too Pretty Love, and I'm fighting on Valentine's Day. So I will be giving a lot of love out on February 14th. <laughs> and presumably so eating eating some chocolates afterwards. <laughs> afterwards, presumably so, as long as it's afterwards. So there you go. <laughs> All right, good stuff. All right, let's make uh, our picks for the main event only. Uh, first, good news for you, Karen. Uh, you crushed with last week's picks. Uh, you scored seven points to my three. The Solis upset pick really backfired on me. So I went from up two points to down two points. You're ahead, 1917. Let's see if you know how to play. Damn, you've got me just where you want me. <laughs> I do indeed. I do indeed. Yes. Uh, anyway, it's your turn to pick first. How do you see Thomas Matisse versus Isaac Pitbull Cruz? Okay, so so Matisse, you know, I think in many ways he is the class in this matchup. You know, we've seen him, as we talked about, we've seen him plenty on Showbox. He's shown his strengths and his weaknesses, his strengths. He's a good boxer. He's got decent pop. He works well behind a quality jab. But the big weakness he starts far too slowly, far too often. I mean, you talked about how he's coming on against Dutch over. Um, and that's what he does. I mean, it's what happened against Will Madeira. He started really, really slow. And by the time he got into the groove, there was just no time left to make up the lost ground. Um, you know, and as Madeira showed, he can be outworked and out hustled. 
uh, which does suggest he could be in a bit of trouble against Cruz, who does do what his pitbull nickname suggests. He comes at you, and he comes at you. Uh, he strides forward. He looks to just slip under his opponent's jab, work the body, bob up with hooks, um, and crosses to the head. And his body attack, in particular, can be really effective. And he starts off on the front foot, um, which Matisse often doesn't. So that said, this is a 10-rounder, so Matisse may have enough room to work his way back into the contest. Um... Big issue for me is that Cruz is going to have to find his way inside Matisse. And Matisse is a good four and a half inches taller than him. Uh, Cruz is not a tall guy. Um, so it is possible that Matisse is going to be able to use his size advantage. And I think probably an overall class and skill advantage and and just, you know, have his way with Cruz. But that said, I might be about to give my lead right back to you here because I have a feeling that I, I'm just going to go with what might be the slight upset here. Matisse has had plenty of opportunities to impress us without quite succeeding in doing so. And at 29, I think he is what he is. I think Cruz might have a bit more potential. I think Cruz is just going to be able to do enough to eke out a close, but yeah, unanimous decision win. <laughs> That's the longest uh, I've ever heard the word uh. unanimous pronounced. Um <laughs> All right, yeah, you're you're proving me right. You don't know how to uh, how to play with a lead. You're uh, you're blowing it, son, because uh, you have opened the door. Maybe you'll extend your lead, but uh, the uh, the pitbull nickname really does fit Cruz. He's very compact, thick, powerful, and bobs and weaves and comes forward. And this is one of those matchups where if Matisse is at his best. He boxes his way to victory, and if he yep. has lapses, Cruz makes him pay. I could really see this going either way, same as, same as you, but I will make the educated guess that Matisse, coming off the Dutch over win, will come in with a real sense of purpose, will fight with confidence, and will stick to the plan of controlling the distance, boxing behind the jab. I think Cruz will have moments, but Matisse will be consistent enough to win a unanimous decision somewhere in the 97-93 the kind of range. There you go. We shall see. It's, I'm obviously just not comfortable not having you where I want you. So that's sort of this. <laughs> I, uh, I, I hope to that you will soon have me back where you want me. Indeed. There you okay. go. All right. Uh, not much else on the agenda in terms of upcoming fights this coming week. A couple of fight cards of note. Uh, on Friday on the zone, prospect slash contender. I guess he's not even really a prospect anymore. Is he a contender right. now? Yeah, Ryan Garcia. Yeah, uh, fresh off his mightily impressive one-round blowout of Romero Duno. Looks to run his pro ledger to 20-0 against Francisco Fonseca in Anaheim, California. That card also sees Jorge Linares begin yet another comeback following his shocking loss to Pablo Cesar Cano. He takes on Carlos Morales. Uh, and on Saturday on a Fox televised card from Nashville, uh, that card featuring a pair of our favorite Caleb's uh, super middleweight Caleb Truax. I'm not sure if he's actually one of the televised fights. Um, I was actually surprised to see he'd only fought most recently, just a couple of weeks ago, Caleb Truax. Uh, he takes on Ernest Amuzu uh, in the main event. Uh, his namesake, fellow 168 pounder Caleb Plant, defends his belt against Vincent uh, Feigenbutz. Eric, without uh, knowing anything about uh, Vincent Feigenbutz, I assume you are picturing. Caleb Plant's menacing stare, the same stare that haunts you in your nightmares <laughs> and continuing with your, the vow that you made to him personally that you're never going to pick against him again. It's really two rules of boxing betting coming together here. <laughs> uh, don't bet against Caleb Plant unless I have a very compelling reason. 
and don't bet on a ga- guy named Feigenbutz. Uh, at least not at the world class level. You know, in, in club fights in Rheinstetten, Germany, fine, but not not against Caleb Plant in Nashville. Uh, and by the way, as you know, Kieran, I was just in Nashville two weekends ago, uh, my first time ever being there. Uh, what a fun downtown area! I didn't That's I didn't right. see the whole city. But downtown, you know, if you like live music and alcoholic beverages, it's a fun place yeah. to be. Uh, anywho, uh, yeah, this feels like a gimme for Plant uh, and good for our pal Caleb Truax for keeping extraordinarily busy. As for the DAZN card, uh, Fonseca isn't a bad fighter, but I don't see him having a chance in this one. Golden Boy isn't about to get King Rye bumped off, yeah. especially not on Valentine's Day. Uh, no truth to the rumor, by the way, that he told Fonseca he was getting the fight by handing him a Valentine's Day card that said... I choo choo choose you. <laughs> Deep cut for the uh, for the Simpsons fans who are as old as we are. Yes, that's right. And if and if you uh, watch that fight and replay frame by frame, you'll be able to see the very moment where Garcia breaks Fonseca's <laughs> heart. Well done. <laughs> All right, enough jollity for the moment. Uh, We have uh, outside the ring issue to address here before we uh, go. Uh, We begin with something that was hitting the interwebs just as we recorded our podcast last week, a video of uh, lightweight titleist, uh, Showtime regular uh, Javante Davis uh, grabbing a woman, uh, subsequently identified as his ex-girlfriend, the mother of his child, uh, near the throat or or by the throat um, at a charity basketball game in Miami and dragging her backstage violently uh davis uh later turned himself into coral gables police detectives issued a statement initially saying i never once hit her yeah i was aggressive and told her come on but that's the mother of my child i would never hurt her uh since then however tmz has published details for the police report which states the video from backstage shows davis quote pulling his arm back and then forward toward the victim which is consistent with a strike to the face where the victim sustained injuries to her lip and left jaw. Uh, Davis uh, posting another message to Instagram before apparently deleting all his social media accounts uh, in which he said, be careful with the decision you make. One mistake can mess up everything. I'm learning. Izzy, though. Um, This is hardly Davis's first quote-unquote mistake. We've talked about him and trying to get his life back uh, on the straight and narrow repeatedly, although this is the first mistake of the specific nature of which I'm aware. Um, Look, this is is bad. This is very, very, very bad. Um, And whether it should be or not, it's worse for him that it's caught on video. Uh, Floyd Mayweather earned bajillion-dollar paydays, became a promoter, and was named by many, including us, fighter of the decade, even though he actually served time for domestic abuse. Uh, Sergey Sergey Kovalev was just in a huge fight with Canelo Alvarez, despite having been charged with awful uh, uh, charges of assault. Um, His accuser claiming, again according to TMZ, that she needed four surgeries to correct the damage he caused to her. Um, uh, Kobe Bryant has just been universally fated, despite... The lingering cloud of, of a 2003 rape accusation to the extent that Gail King is receiving death threats for actually daring to ask about it in a TV interview. Um, all of which, to me, uh, without wanting to go too far off the path here, underline how, uh, look, I think we as a society continue not to treat domestic abuse, sexual assault and violence toward women with anything like the seriousness we need to, especially when these assaults are conducted or allegedly conducted by famous people and especially famous athletes. But all of those men that I just mentioned could at least de- uh, argue, deny their actions in the absence of documentary evidence. What Davis did was caught on video for all to see, including apparently the stuff that not everybody else has seen. Right. Um, so I guess there's two processes to play out here. There's a legal process 
and a case that will be tried before the court of public opinion. Um, and like I said, at least with all those aforementioned examples, you can make the case of waiting, allowing the legal process to play out and establish guilt or innocence. That's a little bit of a harder case to make when now everybody has seen Javante Davis grab a woman and drag her off forcefully. Um, I hate framing a possible case of assault in terms of how this is going to impact the perpetrator and not the victim. But this is a boxing podcast. The alleged perpetrator is a boxer, a boxer we've had on this podcast, who we've had lined up for a big fight on this network about whom we've said positive things, you and I. Mm. Um, um, So all of that said, do you have a best guess for how all of this plays out and or even how it should play out? I'm kind of dumping a lot on your lap here. um, And just any thoughts about this situation at all? Yeah, this is a the the tricky thing for us is to try to address this impartially when Javante Davis is emerging as one of the biggest stars on the network we work for. Uh, but I think you did a fine job in that setup, and uh, I'll do my best here as well. I think boxing wise, his career will proceed on at least for a while with this in the background, just as Sergey Kovalev's did, just as. Mayweather's did for a while until he ended up doing some time in prison, just as Diego Corrales's did before it too was right. interrupted for a prison stay and on and on. I can't begin to guess whether there will be a serious price to pay in terms of legal consequences for the extremely rough handling of a woman that we saw in that video. Uh, and I'm not sure how clear a punch is or isn't in the other video we haven't seen. I don't know. The fact that there's video is, as you said, hugely important in terms of public sentiment. Uh, Ray Rice was going to walk away more or less scot-free after knocking out a woman until the video surfaced. And then it was effectively the end of his football career. I heard uh, Kevin Ioli on a podcast last week say, Lord only knows what he does in private if this is what he does in public. And yeah, you have to wonder. Of course, What we have to go on is what we've now seen him do in public, and it looks bad. But if we're looking at it from a boxing perspective, it's entirely possible that it won't impact Davis's career. I think we have to take a step back, though, and ask the question, what will he personally take from this? Is this Mm. the last straw, the wake-up call, the holy shit, I need to get my act together before I blow everything kind of moment? Or is he one of those people who just cannot stay out of trouble and is never going to get it together. Uh, You mentioned him getting off of social media. Well, that lasted about six days Uh, at 2 a.m. on Saturday. He (laughs) tweeted simply two words, goal digger, G-O-A-L. So malaprop aside, the fact that he tweeted that does not fill me with confidence. Mm. So I don't know how this plays out. What we saw was bad. There's no way around it. And to a degree, it's good that there was video and we all saw it. Um, I'll just say, I hope Javante gets his shit together in a hurry for the good of himself and all the people in his orbit. Yeah, well said. Um, All right, let's get back to actual in-ring action. Um, A couple more pieces of news to report before we uh, head out the door here. Um, First up. Daniel Roman, who was edged out by a split decision by Murajan Amagdaliev a little more than a week ago, uh, is petitioning the relevant sanctioning bodies to demand an immediate rematch. Um, I understand that sentiment. Like, I'm sure if I were Roman, I perhaps would. Uh, As we discussed last week, uh, I agree that a rematch makes sense for both parties at some point. um, But I'm not sure that that wish should be granted here. Like, there wasn't any real controversy. It was a close fight 
which I think most observers felt Akhmadaliyev deserved to eke out. Um, if both, it feels to me like if this is one of those situations. If both sides want a rematch and agree terms, great. But I don't know that there's a rationale for forcing Akhmadaliyev to take one. Do you agree with that? Yeah, from the perspective of the sanctioning body, yeah, I agree. This doesn't call for a forced immediate rematch. Of course, the sanctioning body's sense of logic and Indeed. our sense of logic Indeed. are rarely aligned. Uh, nobody is handing us an envelope full of cash to help shape our opinions. Uh, but from uh, Roman's perspective, I get it. And you, you basically said this from, from his point of view. You want the rematch. You want your belts back. May as well work the system as best you can to get it. Uh, so he's right to try and go down this road. We'll see if the sanctioning body says, nah, Akhmedaliyev is entitled to a challenger of his choosing first, because that, that's how I see it, that uh, he certainly has the right to, uh, to to pick an opponent and, and get around to Roman when, uh, when the time is right. Indeed. Um, one fight that will be happening, though, it seems, it's a fascinating one. Uh, we have talked often about British heavyweight prospects Joe Joyce and Daniel Dubois, comparing their trajectories and ceilings. Well, we're going to get a chance to see them one-on-one in the ring at the O2 Arena in London on April 11th. Uh, We'll doubtless talk about this in greater depth. I know we're both very high on Dubois in particular. But your initial thoughts on hearing this. Oh, man. This news got me pumped. Uh, 14-0, 13 KOs versus 10-0, 9 KOs. You don't see heavyweight fights like this very often. I happen to be a lot higher on one of these prospects than the other, but... Still, you can make a case that these are the two best heavyweight prospects out there, and they're squaring off before either of them truly needed to, and uh, that's that's a great thing for the sport. Uh, I remember in December 1998, when David Tua faced Hasim Rahman, Larry Merchant called it the most important fight of the year because it was so rare to see two young rising heavyweights square off like that and help determine who's going to take over after the Holyfield Tyson Lewis generation is done. That's how that was framed. It turned out that it was neither Tua nor Rockman, although Rockman had his moment, of course. Uh, but we didn't know that at the time. And Tua Rockman meant a lot. And I, I'm trying to think of if we've seen a heavyweight fight since quite like Dubois Joyce. I guess mm. you could make a case for Anthony Joshua, Dillian White, that that was kind of comparable. Although uh, I don't know that outside of Britain that, that, Dillian White was uh, a big deal at all yet. But anyway, we will talk more about it. We have time. Uh, yeah, just know that I'm pumped for this one. Yeah. Um, and now we'll we'll bring the mood down and uh, end with some sad news. Former 140-pound titleist and welterweight challenger Johnny Bumpfist died in his hometown of Tacoma, Washington at the age of just 59. Bumpfist was an excellent amateur and earned a spot on the 1980 U.S. Olympic team. But, of course, due to the boycott, did not attend the games. And he retired at the very young age of 26 with a pro record of 29 and two with 20 KOs. He had one of the best nicknames of his era, Bump City, Johnny <laughs> Bump City Bumpfus. Kieran, any final words on Johnny Bumpfus? Yeah, Bumpfus was actually the very first boxer in the main event stable to win a world title. Uh, and he won an alphabet belt, 140 pounds on January 22nd, 1984. Um, he lost it in an upset to Gene Hatcher, um, following which there was this massive in-ring brawl. Um, and his only other pro loss was in his last fight uh, to Lloyd Hunnigan. Uh, and that was a fight that had impacts that resonate uh, today. Uh, so Hunnigan dropped Bumpfus near the end of the first round. As the bell rang for the second, Hunnigan, who is a really just overhyped, just incredible, you know, go for it at all costs kind of fighter. He was already halfway across the ring when the bell sounded, basically. And uh, seeing that Bumpfus was a bit slow to get off the stool, seeing that Lou Duva was 
even slower to get out of the ring. He just ran across and cracked bumpers while he was still on the stool, basically. Um, and uh, as a result, the rules now require, as a direct result of that, the rules now require the, the referee to stand in between the two corners and keep them apart until the referee is ready for them to, to, to go at it at the uh, beginning of every round. Um, you know, one thing that was obvious in that final fight was that Bumpers just had nothing in his legs. And um, Kathy Duva said that not only was he the first one, first fighter for main events to win a world title, but she said that he was really the first time that she saw the difficulties or the trouble that were caused by those twin uh, curses of uh, substance addiction and desperately trying to make weight. And, and those two combined uh, probably had a real uh, impact on his health and on his career. I, I hope, said Kathy, that he has finally found some peace. And I think we will all agree with that. Mm. All right. That will do it for this week's edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Join us next week when we will not only be reviewing Friday's Showbox card, we will be looking ahead to the big one, the heavyweight championship rematch between Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder. Until then, thanks for listening.